Remain standing for the gospel lesson and sermon text from John 21. I'm going to read verses 18 to 23. Most assuredly, I say to you, talking to Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what it means to follow Jesus as we meditate on these verses, give us the grace that we need to be not only hearers, but also doers of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I stopped uh, at at verse 23. We are going to come back one more week, and I'm going to do a sort of, I'm going to use verses 24 and 25 as something of a launching pad for a sermon on the whole book of John, or really you could say a sermon on all four Gospels, uh, sort of talking about a, a couple of themes that run through the Gospels and John in particular. So, and that will be the final final sermon on John. This, in a sense, today is the final expository sermon on John, where we're just going to go verse by verse through these through this passage. Last week, we tried to enter into Peter's range of emotions, his joy and his grief, as he sat across the charcoal fire from Jesus on the shore of the Tiberias Sea, as he was drawn in by the Lord's repeated question, Simon, do you love me? It's true that Peter was grieved by the remembrance of his threefold denial. And that, that is part of what's going on here. It even says that he was grieved by that third question. But more fundamentally, Paul, or Peter was overjoyed that the one asking him these questions, the, this, this hard question, penetrating question, was also the one who loved him enough to die for him. Peter knew now more than he had ever known, better than he had ever known, that Jesus loved him with a love that is deeper 
and richer than any, than any merely human love could ever be. He not only loved Peter in spite of his denials, he also loved Peter so much that he was willing to be condemned by God on a Roman cross for those denials and for all of Peter's sins. When Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him, Peter appeals to Christ's knowledge, his omniscience even at the end there, as evidence that he does love Jesus. After all, Jesus is the one who predicted that Peter would fall away and then repent and be restored and then go on to encourage the brethren afterward. Jesus knew that Peter was a true son, a true believer. He knew Peter loved him. In fact, Jesus knew that Peter loved him even when Peter maybe wasn't sure that Peter loved Jesus. When the rooster crowed right after Peter's third denial, Peter's assurance of salvation was not likely at an all-time high. He, he, he likely wasn't confident of his own love for Jesus, at least in that moment. But Jesus knew. His knowledge never changed, and Peter's becoming aware of this. When the rooster crowed, and the eyes of Peter and the eyes of Jesus met, Peter felt unspeakable guilt and shame, bitter shame. But Jesus felt unspeakable Compassion and undying love for one of his sons. By the time we get to this scene on the shore of the Tiberias Sea, Peter had come to realize that Christ knows a whole lot more about Peter than Peter knows about Peter. He knows Peter's future better than Peter does. He knows Peter's sinful tendencies better then Peter does, and Peter has come to accept this. He knows Peter's love better than Peter does. So when Jesus asks him, do you love me, the only thing Peter can do is appeal to Christ's proven superior knowledge, particularly his proven superior knowledge of Peter, which includes his knowledge of Peter's love. Peter loves Jesus with all of his heart, more so now than ever before. In today's passage, verses 18 to 23, in this final chapter of John, we see Jesus infusing Peter with, with the right perspective on how to serve Christ for the remainder of his life. This passage also provides general principles for everyone who loves Christ and wants to, to submit to a life of service to Christ. That's where Peter was. And Jesus is showing him what that looks like so we can peek in and see what it looks like for us. Do you love Jesus? In response to his great love for you, do you want to, to know how to follow him, how to follow Christ and serve him for the remainder of your life starting today? If so, then this text is for you. This passage... It tells us two things about following Christ. Two things about a life of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two principles are universal. 
for every, they're, they're true for every Christian in every place in every time. No exceptions. Here they are. First, following Christ requires taking up your cross. Second, following Christ requires, requires taking up your cross. Did you hear the distinction? Uh, let me spell it out. Every Christian is required to take up a cross. That's what it means when you become a Christian. You bear a cross. Being a follower of Jesus necessarily means bearing a cross. That's the first principle. The second principle is that every Christian is called to bear a unique cross. The cross that Christ has given you and you and you is specifically for you and you and you. Each one is different. So your cross is not for someone else, and someone else's cross is not for you. Every life of service to Christ is a unique life of service to Christ. And so first, following Christ requires taking up your cross. And second, following Christ requires taking up your cross. We find the first principle in verses 18 and 19. Jesus teaches this by prophesying about the suffering that awaits Peter. Let's get verses 18 and 19 before us again. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. There have been two main interpretations of this prophecy over the centuries. The first interpretation says that Jesus is merely telling Peter that whereas he was once young and able to take care of himself, dress himself, do those sort of go where he wants to go, a day's coming when he will be an old man who's forced to reach out for help from, from others, from other younger people who can help him. In other words, someday Peter will no longer be able to dress himself and go where he wants to go. He'll be dependent on others to, to dress him and take him places. Now, th- this, that reality is undoubtedly a form of suffering, uh, of part, part of the groaning of living, living in this uh, creation, this fallen creation. And many of us will, will be called to endure this sort of thing in our old age. But the second interpretation, which is the majority view among Christian scholars, is the better interpretation. It says that Jesus is telling Peter that he will die a martyr's death by crucifixion. Okay? And, and there are two smoking gun arguments, I think, for this interpretation. One is the first part of verse 19 which says, this Jesus spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. So he's, he's speaking to the kind of death here that Peter's going to die. And, and, this is, and that language is standard Christian language for martyrdom, particularly in the early church. Martyrs glorify God in their deaths in a special way. The second giveaway 
is the phrase, you will stretch out your hands, right there in verse 18. In the ancient world, stretching out your hands was a way of referring to crucifixion. And that's precisely how the church fathers, living closest to the time of, of John's writing, that's how they understood this phrase, pretty much universally. Really no doubt about it to them. And this fits, too, with what we know about crucifixion, how it worked in the ancient world. The stretching out of the arms took place when the condemned prisoner was tied to that, to that cross beam that was assigned to him. And, and he was forced to carry that cross beam to the place of the execution where it would be put on the pole along with him. And so this cross member would be placed on the prisoner's neck and back, his shoulders and and neck, with his arms tied to it. He was girded by another. And then he would be led away to the place of execution, taken where he did not want to go. Peter was destined to imitate Christ, not only in the kind of death he suffered, but also in bringing glory to God through his death. Peter himself came to recognize the principle that whenever any believer follows Christ to suffering and death, it is a way of bringing glory to God. He's learning that even now. And do you remember what Peter later wrote in his first epistle? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." And here's what's remarkable about this prophecy of Christ in verses 18 and 19 of John 21. Peter lived for over three decades, probably about three and a half decades, with this prophecy hanging over his head. Right? And by the time John wrote this gospel, Christ's prediction about Peter had already been fulfilled. Peter had already died. He had glorified God by his martyrdom. And we don't, we don't have any strong historical sources to verify exactly when and where Peter ended up being crucified, but it likely happened in Rome under Nero in the mid-60s. You've probably heard the legend that Peter was crucified, that he was asked to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. Uh, Most scholars agree with D.A. Carson on this who says that these accounts, quote, are too remote and too infected with legendary accretions to be reliable. So we, we don't know that that really happened, but we do know that he was martyred, that he was crucified. Carson goes on to say this, what is 
undisputed is that the indelible shame Peter bore for his public disavowing of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was sentenced to death was forgiven by the Lord himself. And subsequently, that shame was overwhelmed by the apostles' fruitful ministry and martyrdom. I like that last part. Over his, the shame was overwhelmed by the apostles' fruitful ministry and martyrdom, having been forgiven. So Christ not only forgave Peter of his shameful sin, he also commissioned Peter and accomplished through Peter a fruitful life of cross-bearing service that overshadowed his sin. That's how the grace of God works in your life. It's so good, it's so overwhelming that it causes what God is working in you, it causes that fruit that God is working in you to overshadow, to overwhelm even your greatest sins. So Jesus, he desires the same for you. He can accomplish the same for you, in you, through you. Like, Like Peter, you have sinned some big sins. So have I. You've piled on the guilt and the shame, repeatedly, as have I. But your pile of sins is never bigger than the infinite mountain of God's grace. Jesus is as willing and ready to forgive you and use you as he was willing and ready to use Peter, having forgiven him. He's willing and ready to accomplish in you a fruitful life of cross-bearing service that overshadows your sin. So today can be the day that you have your Peter moment. The day that you begin to walk with Christ with renewed power, renewed perspective, a renewed awareness of Christ's deep, deep love for you. And with that, a renewed readiness to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus through the difficulties that he has ordained for you. Of course, you do need to know that, it, that, that such a life of service, cross-bearing, will be difficult. Jesus was telling Peter very explicitly here that the rest of his life of service would include hardships, afflictions, And he even talks about those afflictions in his epistles with a renewed perspective for us. And it would culminate in the pain and public disgrace of his own crucifixion. Peter, like Jesus, would have to bear a literal wooden cross at the end of his life. But Peter, like Jesus, and like the rest of us, had to bear a different kind of cross his entire life in his service to Christ. Every devoted servant of Jesus will bear a cross 
Maybe not a wooden one, a literal one at the end of your life that you're hanging on and that you suffocate on. But you will bear a cross and it will be given to you by Christ. And you bear this cross in this life out of love for the one who died on a cross for you. That's where Peter is. He's, he's realizing now that Christ died for me. And, P, and now Jesus is teaching Peter that he's going to take up a cross for Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us. Note that word, control. Compels us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. So for the rest of Peter's life, the love of Christ so controlled him that he no longer lived for himself, but for Christ alone. Christ's love for Peter and Peter's love for Christ controlled Peter in a new way. That word controlled in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that I just read means gripped. It means hemmed in. It sometimes describes the the tight hold that, that keeps a prisoner from escaping whether it be the chains or the men, the guards. Are you controlled? Are you hemmed in by the love of Christ? Has it gripped you? Have you experienced the Lord's love and acceptance the way Peter did? When you've experienced this forgiveness, this joy, this love, the way Peter did, it will compel you it will compel you to no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you. That's how this works. As the old hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. A story is told of Hudson Taylor, the, the missionary to China, Someone once introduced Taylor, um, you know, as the man who had given his life to the Orient out out of love for the Chinese people. And Taylor, when when he got up, he gently and thoughtfully corrected this person, saying, no, it was out of love for God. He loved the people, of course. No one doubted that. But his love for the people flowed from his love for the Lord. That was the spring. The love of Christ. His love for Christ controlled him. And a life like Hudson Taylor's is what you see when somebody is controlled by that love of Christ. Christ's love for him, his love for Christ. It controls, it compels Hudson Taylor's life was a life of service, of sacrifice, of taking up his cross out of love for Christ. Taylor knew, as Peter knew, 
that love for Christ unavoidably includes a willingness to suffer with him, a willingness to give up my comfort, my rights for the sake of Christ, my ambitions, my goals. When God sent Ananias to the newly converted Paul, God said to Ananias in Acts 9, go, remember Paul, you know, Paul was the one persecuting the church at this point, but he had just recently been converted. He tells Ananias, this Christian, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We, we, sometimes we like the first half of that when we think about what God is going to send us to do or what's he, what's he tasking me with? What kind of great mission is he giving me? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's when we're willing to submit to that second part that God can use us to do the big things in the first part of that. And later when Paul was in prison... He was in prison more than once. One time he wrote a, a letter to the Christians in Philippi, the book of Philippians, and he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So he's calling these Philippian Christians to be willing, not just to believe in Christ, but to go where that faith, where that love for Christ is going to take you, which is, to some level of suffering that they had already been experiencing, actually. So Paul, Paul knew that he and the rest of us have crosses to bear. And he embraced his cross for the joy set before him, even as his Lord, Jesus Christ, took up his cross for the joy set before him. And the apostle Peter responded the same way, ultimately, when Jesus told him that he had a life of suffering that would culminate and a crucifixion. See, the love of Christ captivates believers. It so captivates us that we'll want to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And this kind of living in service to Christ always means obedience, self-denial, mission, hardship, afflictions. If your priority is comfort and ease, the, the American dream, if you've managed maybe even to create an existence that is insulated from the, di from the difficulties caused by your Christianity, potential difficulties caused by your faith in Christ, if your faith in Christ doesn't cause any snags or glitches in your life, then something is probably wrong. I quoted 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 earlier. And that's the verse that said that Christ, uh, he, died, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for us. Now listen to John Stott's keen comments on that passage. The church now is not, persecuted so much as ignored 
its revolutionary message has been reduced to a toothless creed for middle-class suburbanites. Nobody opposes it any longer because really there is nothing to oppose. My own conviction, for what it's worth, is that if we Christians were to compromise less, we would undoubtedly suffer more. If we were to hold fast the old-fashioned gospel of Christ, crucified for sinners and of salvation, as an absolutely free and undeserved gift, then the cross would again become a stumbling block to the proud. If we were to maintain the high moral standards of Jesus, of uncorruptible honesty and integrity, of chastity before marriage and fidelity in it, and of costly, self-sacrificial love, then there would be a public outcry that the church had returned to Puritanism. If we were to dare once more to talk plainly about the alternatives of life and death, salvation and judgment, heaven and hell, then the world would rise up in anger against such old-fashioned rubbish. Physical violence, imprisonment, and death may not be the fate of Christians in the West today. But faithfulness to Jesus Christ will without doubt bring ridicule and ostracism. This should not surprise us, however, for we are followers of the suffering Christ. End quote. Peter had once boasted of his willingness to lay down his life for Jesus. Now Jesus is telling him that, in a sense... Peter was right. He got the timing wrong. He will die for his Lord. And when the time comes for Peter to lay down his life, to become a martyr, God will make him willing and ready to do it. Peter won't do it in his own strength. That's what He, he already tried that, and it didn't work. This time he will do it in God's strength, and he will be faithful. He'll do it not on account of his own resolve, but on account of God's power, his resurrection power, working through Peter. The conversation between Peter and Jesus eventually left that charcoal fire on the shore of the Tiberias Sea. By the time Jesus made this startling prophecy to Peter, about Peter, they they appear to be walking on the shore together with John not far behind. And then, perhaps a little distraught about about this news that he's going to be crucified, Peter asks Jesus to prophesy about John. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, and also had leaned on his, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Now, when I read the Gospels, this is just a personal little thing for me, I I make a, a habit of critically examining the common characterization of Peter as an, you know, an impetuous guy who acts and speaks before he thinks. But, but often Peter makes that really hard, doesn't he? Uh, his, rep, his reputation seems to be 
fairly earned, and so I regularly end up coming back to that stereotypical characterization of Peter. As one Bible expositor put it, good old Peter, he loved Jesus with all his heart, he had been restored, he had been commissioned, but he was still Peter. And and that seems about right here. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So, and, and Jesus isn't demeaning Peter here, you know, being sarcastic or anything like that. Uh, he, he is, you could say, putting him in his place, as he ought to do. He's, he's, but he's clearly letting Peter know that John's future, the unique shape that John's life of service will take, is none of Peter's business. Verse 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So in verses 18 and 19, Jesus taught Peter that his life of service to his Lord would require taking up his cross. Now in the second part of the passage, Jesus is teaching Peter that his life of service to his Lord will require taking up his cross. Following Christ requires taking up your cross. But more specifically, following Christ requires you to take up your cross. Don't concern yourself with what God has chosen to do with his other servants. Just keep your eyes on Jesus and follow him on the path that he has laid for you. That he has made for you. He's laid it out. It, it, was, it, it was created, designed in detail before you were born. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. And stay on the uniquely designed path until you get to glory. God is only telling you your story, not anyone else's. He tells no one any story but their own. Let the hearer understand. Your life is a unique and sovereign creation of God. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We... We forget that our entire lives are just as much a sovereign creation of God as ourselves, our beings. It's easy for me to see my body and my soul as God's creation. But the Bible teaches that my entire story, from conception to birth to death to glory, to resurrection on the final day. The whole narrative is a unique and sovereign creation of God. It's the story of Jeremy Sexton. And you also have an unprecedented unprecedented, and unrepeatable story. God specially created it. And no one else will ever play your character. I just want you to let that sink in. Not only the uniqueness of it, of your story, your life, your path, 
but that it's a sovereign, intimate, personal creation of God. It's not primarily your doing. This means that your worth and your effectiveness in service to Christ cannot possibly be determined by comparing yourself to other servants, to someone else. So don't get, don't get bogged down by the unprofitable musings about how a sister in Christ has it easier than you do or how a brother in Christ seems to be better equipped, better gifted to do the same thing you've been called to do. Why, why, weren't, why wasn't I given the same gift set? Don't worry if your cross seems to look or feel a little bit more like a cross than the next guy's. Don't wonder why God hasn't given the, the person next to you the same difficult cross he's given you. God has something special for you just, to, just as he has something special for that next guy. Each of you is simply called to take up his own cross. You've been commissioned to take up your cross and only your cross the one you've been given by Christ. So take it up joyfully and follow him. Walk on your path to glory. The solution to Peter's problem is simply follow me. You follow me, he says. Why is that the solution? James Boyce wisely says, and I want you to listen to this quote. This, this really speaks to our, uh, our times and our situation quite directly. Why is follow me the solution? Because if we are, quote, if we are following Christ, then our eyes will be on him, and he will be seen as the standard of Christian service. If you have your eyes on yourself you expect people to measure up to you and you judge them to be inferior if they do not. With your eyes on Jesus, he becomes the standard for both you and them and he actually draws you together rather than allows you to be driven apart. End quote. There's another advantage to keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. When Christ, rather than self, is in focus, is the focus, we will rightly see that he is worthy and rightly see that we in ourselves are unprofitable servants. When your eyes are on you, you tend to think more highly of yourself than you ought. But when your eyes are on Jesus, there's no room for self-aggrandizing, self-justification, self-sufficiency. Those things are driven out when your eyes are on the one who is authoring and perfecting your faith. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep taking up your cross. Keep following him. Apart from Christ, you are inadequate, unprofitable, unworthy. But in Christ... In Christ, you can become a servant 
who looks forward to that final day when you will hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to take up our crosses and to follow your son, Jesus Christ. To do so with joy, with contentment, and with our eyes fixed on him. We pray that you would help us to do it for the joy that is set before us. The joy that you give us even now but also the joy that we will enter into. Help us to stay on the path, to walk faithfully on the path that you have uniquely designed, created for each one of us. We need your help. We need your spirit to accomplish this in us. Help us this week to keep in step with him, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.